Blog Talk Radio. Now, in the U.S. city of New Orleans, the juvenile detention system is coming under fire. A worrying number of young offenders are becoming victims of violence and abuse while incarcerated. Artis Priya Shrida headed to the city to find out firsthand how the present system seems to be failing those it's seeking to rehabilitate. What makes me mad when I see my people suffer? Jeremiah Douglas is back on the streets of New Orleans. Like many of the kids here, Douglas was locked up in America's juvenile justice system. Growing up, you know, I was raised around, like, everybody I read around with hood mentality and um, certain things I had to do, certain things I wasn't supposed to do, and I did it because I thought it was cool. The hood mentality these kids knew drove many to crime. But now that they're out, they're trying to redefine it to make sure they don't go back. My main focus is getting the truth out in the world. You know, so people could be like, well, I don't have to do this. Douglas's story isn't unique. Most juveniles who are incarcerated in the United States are poor and black. Louisiana has the highest rate of kids getting locked up in this country. Advocates for the kids say they just need something to do to stay out of trouble. And they're not always the culprit. Many of these kids became victims of the system. It was a regular occurrence for us to visit children who had been raped who um, had broken eardrums, um, shattered jaws. (laughs) I mean, just a huge litany of just unbelievably horrible things happened to them while they were incarcerated. Raven Spears was locked up too. Fighting, 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 fighting. And guards, like, they cursing at us and stuff. And behind bars, they're a group that can be forgotten. There's very little public scrutiny. There's very little transparency or accountability. The general public or elected officials um, overall, not to say everyone, but elected officials overall might not consider these youth their primary constituency. But reversing society's perception of them is one challenge they'll continue to face. Youth of color are overrepresented in the juvenile justice system. Now, in Louisiana, in the Deep South, there is certainly a particularly virulent history of racism. So, you know, you can't deny that there is a a history of racism that has kind of led us to where we are today. In spite of the obstacles, these kids are striving for success. That I'm trying to be a millionaire, successful. And when I die, I want, you know, people be like, well, Jeremiah, I'm going to be something like Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. You know, Jesse Jackson, what all they did back in the day. Persevering in a place where the odds are stacked against them. And welcome in, America. If you're wondering what that was, we addressed an issue tonight that is of extreme importance. The criminal justice system has now really tap down really on our young people and the youth of America, the children of incarceration, the children who are incarcerated, the children who are thrown away and left to die. Tonight, AJC Radio takes a trip and a visit, and we go on a journey about juvenile injustice. Folks, hang on to your seats. AJC Radio kicks off right now. And thanks, ladies and gentlemen of America, for joining us tonight. My name is Lamont Banks, along with Lisa Stewart, 
Cliff Stewart, and Dennis Merritt, and the entire AJC radio team. And tonight, I'll tell you, folks, this will be somewhat saddening. And you ask yourself the question, could this happen, and is this happening in America? Have we given up as a nation on our children, where we simply over-criminalize children who may be tardy to class, who may have a truancy problem because of issues at home? Are we addressing the right issues, or do we simply say, throw the kids away? The school-to-prison pipeline is getting larger and larger every day. We as a nation must take a look at this problem, and tonight AJC Radio takes that look. And Lisa, can you read the disclaimer for the people, please? Absolutely. We just want to remind everyone that we are not attorneys, and a just cause does not provide any legal advice. You'll want to contact your personal legal advisor for all of your legal needs. Also, the opinions expressed by callers and guests do not necessarily reflect that of a just cause or AJC Radio. And as always, we want to thank you for tuning in and choosing to spend time with us this evening. All right, and thank you for that, Lisa. We appreciate that. Good evening, Cliff. Uh, How are you this evening? And Dennis, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Good deal. We're glad you folks are here tonight. And... uh, Yeah, this is very, very interesting. Ladies and gentlemen of America, tonight we will also uh, have the privilege of having Tanya Washington. Uh, She is the founder of JusticeCorner.com blog, also a a very impressive legal mind that addresses these issues dealing with juveniles and our system and our criminal justice system. And she's going to be joining us here at the bottom of the hour. Uh, And I'll tell you what, this is some very important information. Dennis, as we were uh, talking earlier, uh, when you hear this, and even the clip playing about the disparities we're dealing with with juveniles. Uh, I mean, a lot of, you know, a lot of black kids are there, Latinos. Uh, what message is America sending when we now say our kids are not worth fighting for? What, what is the problem with that? I, I think we're stuck in this, uh, I, I, this attitude that prison is the only answer. Uh, and not only with you know with 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 uh, our adults, but now we're taking that 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 same attitude toward our children. If we can't correct them in our schools, what we do, we just put them in prison. How is that? I uh, mean, we we don't try to fix it, you know, while they're you know getting educated. We're just gonna no, we're gonna send them to prison at a, a young age, and then we're gonna keep them there. And of course, the problem never gets solved. I mean, it's really a horrific situation. Lisa, as we uh, discuss this issue, uh, and you, uh, you being a mother, uh, how disheartening would it be for, like, you know, your son does something at school and you come home and you find out he's been arrested and thrown in jail? How disheartening is that? What is going on with America right now? Well, actually, with America right now, that's kind of what you expect. Uh, it's happening so often. It's not something that is a surprise or something that catches you off guard anymore. It's the kind of thing that you expect to happen. It's the kind of thing you see all the time. So as far as disheartening, I don't know if it'd be disheartening. I think it's sad that our, that our country has come to that, but it's something that you've come to expect. You know, it's, it's really a bad situation, folks. And uh, this is going to be a good conversation tonight as we address and uncover these issues. Uh, feel free to call in to 347-838-8976. I uh, love to have you. your comments, your, your opinion, and your voice matters. Uh, here on AJC Radio, we'd love to hear from some mothers and fathers out there uh, that are, are, we'd like to get your perspective on something uh, along these lines. It's going to be really, really uh, a very informative show, I believe, and uh, these are issues we must address uh, as AJC and a just cause, and we will continue to do that. 
and uncover uh, these types of things. You know, we can act like they don't matter. They matter. And these are issues that are, are growing at an alarming uh, uh, level and speed and effect that's happening uh, to the American people and our children. Um, and we're going to get into that as we get into the program. Going into some current news now, uh, Cliff, we were, wow, you know, they say you know, guilty pleasures uh, come with chocolate and candy and sweets and all those, but uh, we find here a man shoplifter facing 20 years to life after stealing $31 worth of candy bars. Uh, Cliff, uh, that seems very insane to me. Uh, $31. Now, a felony has to be over the price of an amount of $500 for a felony. $31 is not even considered a misdemeanor. It is petty theft. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out how it is they came up with a, uh, with a felony on this. The story doesn't say anything about a weapon. Uh, it doesn't say anything about him assaulting anybody. And furthermore, I mean, if you're, if you're stealing 30, 31 candy bars. Well, $31 worth of candy bars. $31 bar. worth of candy bars. So you, you got somewhere on the order of 20 and 25 candy bars on your person. This man needs a mental evaluation. In all seriousness, they should have him evaluated. You don't take a person. First off, where is the felony? That's, that's the first issue. Where is the felony in stealing uh, $30 worth of candy bars? And then how about looking at there has got to be a problem here. How do you feasibly think you're walking out of a store with 30 candy well, bars on your purse? Well, well, here's the difference. You know, if, when you're you – now, this man was 34 years old, says he was spotted by a store manager stuffing his pockets full of chocolates at about 2.30 p.m. on December 9th, according to the New Orleans Advocate. He willingly emptied his pockets and gave the candy back, basically – he gave the candy back. Wow. Okay. So then there is no crime. You inside the store, you put the candy in your pocket, take it out, and say, "Here you go. Here, here's your candy back." So but, where is the crime and where is the felony for candy bars? Well, he didn't eat them. There's the difference. And he didn't take them out the store. He, they never left the store. It says on on February third, uh, his crime was boosted to the status of a felony, deserving of two years incarceration. And says Grimes is a career shoplifter, and state law allows the system more leeway if a man has been convicted of theft of goods at least twice before. That legislation needs to be thrown out. Yeah, and it needs some type of handle on it. Theft of goods. So you're telling me if I stole a candy bar twice, and then I come back and I steal a can of soda, I can go to prison for 20 years? To life. That is, that is totally, totally insane. That, that statute right there, they just take that off the books. And the judge who applied that statute, he needs a mental evaluation as well. Because, go ahead, Dennis. Yeah, because here we go. We got someone with a mental problem. And what do we do? We throw them into the prison system. Well, you throw and we him. keep them there and keep them there. And then not only do we throw him in the prison system, we say 20 to life. For candy bars. For candy bars. That, that's uncomprehendable to me. And says that legal experts and rights advocates continue to oppose the state's tough sentencing system, especially the multiple billing statutes. Grimes would have been charged with multiple misdemeanors elsewhere in the United States. This is, this is in Louisiana. And you want to ask the question, ladies and gentlemen, why our prisons are overcrowded, 
why we have a system and we have the most incarcerated people on earth. But you don't even go to prison for shoplifting. It, it just doesn't happen. How do you go to prison? No, you don't. And people, what are you doing here? I got caught shoplifting. That is a misdemeanor that you get public uh, uh, community service for. Not jail time for shoplifting. Candy bars. You went to the you went to the local store and stole candy bars, and you end up in prison for twenty years. That makes absolutely well, no well, sense. Well, here's the bizarre part, folks. It costs eighteen thousand dollars a year <laughs> to keep a man in prison. Obviously, more to justice system than just finances, but given that it costs some 18000 a year to lock up somebody in Louisiana, and given that amount, he has stolen, what he's stolen was $30. The crime, the time does not fit the crime. Are you kidding me right now? That's Folks, just, that, that, there's that's, nothing to say about what that. What do you say about that? And something needs to be done. But, again, we always sit up and we ask, well, what's wrong with our criminal justice? We have the best system in the world. A man wanted a snicker times 30, and uh, uh, he, uh, you want to give him 20 years to life. Folks, we have a serious problem in this country. But you can have somebody that murders somebody, they'll walk in 20. Wow. Somebody help me understand that. Because How do you compare uh, those I, I, can't, I can't help you. You, you can that. walk in 20 years, which is considered prison life, for murder. But you want to give a candy snicker lover 20 to life. That, that is just uncomprehendable to me. Folks, if you think we made it up, this isn't a Hollywood production. This is reality, and uh, something uh, definitely uh, needs to be done. So... Uh, those are things that need to be looked at, and uh, uh, these are issues that you may find comical along the way here, but I'll tell you right now, this, uh, as, as Cliff alluded to, 34 years old, uh, definitely needs a mental eval, because uh, I don't know where you hold that many candy bars uh, on a person, and why you would eat all of them uh, unless he's taking them to his buddies, uh, I don't know, that's just a, that's just a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of an assumption, but uh, those are things that we have to... Uh, uh, definitely deal with and address. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, tonight we are going to be addressing some issues uh, that are very, very important. On the other side of this break, uh, we're going to be t- going into the discussion uh, in regards to juvenile injustice, and we're going to be addressing those issues. Um, and I'd like to put this to the, to the other host here tonight. Uh, how do we fix a system, and how do we have confidence in a system? Now, what we did learn through the research of this program, we learned that these kids also have been placed in solitary confinement. And there was a young lady that made the statement, and you'll hear her clip, her story tonight on, as we get through this program, said that she was put in solitary confinement at the age of 14. And the guard said to her, count the bricks because that's all you're going to have time to do. And somebody slipped her a magic marker under her door. She colored every brick in that cell. Wow. 14 years old. Now, we talk about, remember the show we did on the horrors of solitary confinement with adults. You throw children into solitary confinement, and it doesn't, get the, it doesn't make it any better. When you hear that, a child, a child is thrown into solitary confinement and said, deal with it. 
what kind of nation have we become and how barbaric is that? Dennis, your thoughts? We've become a nation that believes that incarceration is the answer, the solution to, you know, all our problems with, with so-called people we, we label as, you know, monsters or we don't understand them, so we, in, we put them in prison. And it's sad to say, if you really look at it, I mean, you look at the, the black population, they're the majority that, that are incarcerated. I mean, we just got to look at it really realistically and then it's because the lack of knowledge the lack of understanding of the different cultures so the majority of our, our the, the people with the power to put someone in prison is white i mean let's just be realistic they don't know the culture they don't know so so we're considered monsters or whatever because they don't understand why we did a certain thing so we take this prison population and we says we tell ourselves that this is the solution. This is how we fix America. We put them in prison. And, and that's not the answer. It's not working. It's never going to work. Whether you take them out of school and put them in prison, it does not matter. Until we educate and help people to understand that our cultures are different. You know, without question. And, folks, you know, the facts are the facts. And we find this majority of African-American kids, Latinos, that are being locked up because, again, as Dennis alluded to, the culture is not understood. And if all you're doing is locking kids up. I mean, one of the gentlemen that you'll hear from tonight on, on, one of the, on doing the research that we did was an honor student. Wow. Straight A's. He had some issues at home, problems. that Nobody wants to address those issues. Exactly. Those issues at home many times are affecting kids falling off. Why don't we address the home situation? Let's get the parents out of poverty. Let's pull the dads from prison. Let's give them jobs and training and what they can do to achieve what they need to achieve. Many, there are many ways to cast blame here. And I'll tell you what, if you're just looking at a student who fell fell off with his grades and started making some bad choices, and you don't get to the root of the problem, which many times is poverty-stricken neighborhoods, single-parent moms raising kids because their dad is locked up for many times over-criminalization in this country. Exactly. And we want to ask, what is the problem? Why do these kids start messing up? Well, let's look a little deeper. Our politicians need to look a little deeper. Give that woman a job. I agree. Give that mother a job. Give her some incentive. Make her feel like she's important, that she needs to uh, help her feel good about herself. Let's get classes about that. Let's lift these people's self-esteem. Let's do what is necessary, that the foundation of home is what it is that deters children from maybe walking down that road. To me, that is the big picture. Cliff, your thoughts on that? Yeah, and what, what happens is you have these kids that become a, a forgotten sect of society. They just throw them in a cage and say, you know, well, they're, you know, every kid, as a as a kid, you go through adolescence, you start having some hormones raging, and you do some stupid things. We all did it, but everybody does not deserve to go to prison for making, uh, you know, childhood That's mistakes. Right. That's right. It, it's a mistake. Teach the children, and like Dennis alluded to, I mean, it. We have to understand the cultures, and then those who are making the policies, those who are enforcing the policies, have to accept the fact that there is a cultural difference. Exactly. Have to accept the fact that what you consider a crime because you grew up in Mayberry, 
on uh on you know Luscious Lane or whatever and you never you never saw any hardship as, as a child this other child in another neighborhood they the the horrors that go on in the quote unquote hood that is real and because you don't understand it does not mean that the children that came from that deserve to be thrown in a cage and the and the key thrown away understand and deal with the fact that these kids come from a different place and it is your job as a mm. prosecutor as an implementer of the law to ensure that these kids have a fair shake, not, oh, go to prison for 20 years because you stole some candy bars. I still can't get over that. Wow. Well, I'll tell you what, and folks, we're going to get more from uh, Cliff's perspective uh, that he can shed some light on some of those things coming up uh, in situations as he was growing up. I tell you, he doesn't speak from what he's heard. Uh, he speaks from what he's lived. So, ladies and gentlemen, on the other side of this break, uh, we're coming back, and uh, juvenile injustice running rampant in the streets of America, and who is to answer? We'll get those answers when we come back on AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you a question? Did you know that there are over 2.4 million people behind bars in the United States? I'll ask you one more question. Were you aware that that is the highest number of people behind bars in the entire world? The United States makes up of only 5% of the world's population, but we have over 25% of the world's prison population. America prides itself on being the most advanced and progressive nation on earth. However, sadly, we are also the world's most archaic. I'm going to give you a personal invitation to get involved with the fight against mass incarceration. Take a few moments to call 1-855-529-4252. That is a just cause. And we fight for justice. Again, call a just cause today. Don't delay Call 1-855-529-4252. It is time, and I say high time, that we take America's incarceration seriously. Won't you join us? Call today. I'm a mother. I'm a father. I'm a sister. A registered nurse. I serve my country in the United States military. I'm your neighbor. I sit next to you at church. And my child was arrested, held in custody, questioned without my knowledge, exposed to violence, witnessed to rape, placed in solitary confinement, unable to call or see me, shackled to a wall, beaten, sentenced as an adult at age 17, sentenced as an adult at age 16, sentenced as an adult at age 15. We felt lost, isolated, ostracized, misjudged, terrified, and in the absence of all hope, my child took his own life. And then I found the Alliance for Youth Justice. They gave me the support and resources to get through one of the most difficult times in my life. Now I know I'm not alone. And neither are you. Now we have a voice. Now we, we have, have power. power. In numbers. In numbers. In numbers. We, we can, can make a difference. difference. 
There are approximately 2 million children in the juvenile and criminal justice system in this country. These are the faces of those families. If you are the family member of a child who has been in the justice system, or if you are someone who supports this movement and is ready to make a difference, visit the Campaign for Youth Justice at www.campaignforyouthjustice.org. I don't have to tell you about the challenges we face every day. That would be like preaching to the choir. Yeah. Today you have a chance to face the challenge of your risk for diabetes. My dad had diabetes, and one in four U.S. adults are at risk, myself included. If you're older than 45 or African-American, that risk increases. So here's a chance to ask yourself, what can I do? Talk to your doctor about getting screened and know what your options are. Learn more at AskScreenKnow.com. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, this is AJC Radio. I'm Lamont Banks, along with Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, and Dennis Merritt. And I'll tell you, ladies and gentlemen, you may feel like the mission ahead of America and its children is impossible. But we got news for you tonight. There are answers that we are going to seek out tonight. And I'll tell you right now, the mission is not impossible if we come together, Dennis, as a nation uh, and as the American people to bring about this change. Your thoughts on that? Exactly. I think, again, I spoke earlier about uh, how we need to, uh, America needs to really get involved with, uh, you know, this, this, this here prison to, uh, you know, a school to prison pipeline. It, it just doesn't work. We have to come up with something where we can educate and get everybody on, on board. And then another thing I was thinking about, uh, Lamont, as we were talking you know, you don't want me to discipline my children. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, I can't I, I can't raise them up the way I normally would raise them up. So you take discipline out of the equation. What do you have? You got problems. No, without question. And uh, they want to become the disciplinarians of our children <laughs> and put them in solitary confinement and mentally strip them of everything. Exactly. Uh, that is true. Um, th- that's uncomprehendable. And tonight... Uh, and I've just been informed, uh, ladies and gentlemen of America, that we will actually be joined not only by Tanya Washington, uh, the advocate we talked about earlier, the founder of JusticeCorner.com blog, but also Judge Colbert from Savannah, Georgia, uh, will also be joining us tonight. And she is, a, she is in, the, in uh, the juvenile court down there in Georgia, and we're going to hear her perspective. Uh, folks, grab your families and friends, get them together, because I believe this information is critical. Not only tonight, but for America's future, as we begin to address these issues, how do we bring about an institute change? As Dennis alluded to, it is about education. It is about doing the humanly correct thing. Not the politically correct, not the big business correct. The humanly correct thing is to to really do what we can to help our children. Uh, What Example, what foundation is it that we want to lay uh, down for our children? Uh, As a person that was uh, wrongfully convicted uh, in this state, and I had the opportunity through that experience to see a lot of young kids come into the system. And I'm going to tell you, I saw kids that looked like they were 13, 14 years old. Wow. Uh, You knew they were. They were 18. They were legal, but it was they had never experienced prison or experience and the fear and this 
the things that they saw. And it's going around now that a lot of kids in some states are sent to adult penitentiaries. Wow. They're sent there, and, and we know uh, uh, about the story, which we'll be, uh, again, uh, talking about of Khalif Browder was 16 years old when he went to Rikers Island. If you know anything about jails or prisons, Rikers Island is not a place you want to be. And here's the kicker to that story. He was never charged with a crime. Ultimately, this young man took his own life. He took his life. And how is, how is it that no one is held accountable for that? How can we lose a life? How can we in, put someone in prison and there are no charges against them and, and nothing happens? It's like, uh, oops, made a mistake, and of course uh, the kid gets out and uh, a few years later takes his life. That's sad. That's, that's just sad. And the worst part about that, you know, they put this kid in there. I mean, not the, the worst part is that he ended up taking his own life. But when he got out, they offered him no uh, rehabilitation. Wow. They offered him no counseling. It, I mean, nothing. They just put him out like, okay, the, the charges against you have been dropped. This is a kid who tried to commit suicide like six, seven times while he was locked up in Rikers. Yeah, he did. I mean, he tried to kill himself so many times. They let him out and just say, okay, we're done with you. We're not charging you with anything and let him go on his way. Oh, wow. And, and, and I mean, he went, he went uh, co- trying to commit suicide another time, ended up spending time in the hospital. Uh, had an interview with uh, with HLN saying, you know, I never had these type of mental issues before they locked me up, before they put me in solitary confinement. But they left him out there by himself, no professional help after after this grave misjustice that they did to his life, and then he ends up taking his own life in the end because he he just could not handle what he had gone through. Where's the accountability? It, that is the thing. Where is the accountability? Where are the people all the way from the police officers who interrogated him, who took him to Rikers, the judge who allowed him to stay there, the DA who who allowed him to stay there. All of those people need to be held accountable for this young man's uh, untimely death. That would be justice. If not, it'll happen again. Well, it's happening every day in this country, folks. Uh, Feel free to chime into the conversation, 347-838-8976. Make a note of it, 347-838-8976, to get in this conversation. And we are going to, uh, right now, uh, we have the privilege and the opportunity uh, to bring on uh, two of our esteemed guests tonight that we are, we are proud and privileged to have. And I had an opportunity to talk to uh, Tanya Washington today. Uh, we've talked to her before uh, on this program, and uh, a young lady that is doing some things uh, that's making a difference uh, in this country and is an expert, in my opinion, of dealing with juvenile issues. Um, she is the founder of JusticeCorner.com, a blog that focuses on highlighting injustice in juvenile systems. And uh, Tanya, welcome to the program tonight. Thank you so much, Lamont. And thank you for joining us. And I believe we also uh momentarily are going to be bringing somebody else on a, a judge Colbert is going to be joining us here soon and we're going to bring her on as soon as uh as they get her in but tanya thank you so much for taking time tonight to be a part of this program 
um, and we would like an opportunity for you to introduce yourself to our listeners uh, and just tell us a little bit about what you're doing and why Juvenile Injustice, the, the title of this program, is so close to your heart. Absolutely. Um, it, it's a hugely important issue, partially because it goes under the radar. Uh, mostly what happens in juvenile court is confidential. I actually have practiced law for over 20 years, and um, probably four years of it in New York City was in juvenile and criminal justice. I also did some civil rights work. Um, but my mother actually was a juvenile justice professional, so I've been around a population of kids who have been incarcerated for most of my life, over 40 years. And I started to see so many injustices in the system in terms of who was getting referred to court, what was happening, who was getting locked in detention centers, locked in juvenile institutions. And you talked about Rikers Island. I've been there. I've had clients there. Now, the, the, the difference between what's happening in Rikers Island and, and uh, juvenile institutions, Rikers Island is actually where young people are charged as adults. At 16 in New York, whatever crime you're charged with is an adult crime, and that's why those kids are going to Rikers Island. But there's other kids who actually are charged in juvenile court, but they're still going to similar-looking institutions because our juvenile correctional institutions are modeled after adult prisons. And there's wow. a lot of abuse going on in there, a lot of trauma, and a lot of kids are coming out um, worse off than when they went in. So that's no, why that I'm hugely passionate about it. And now, as a senior associate at the Annie Casey Foundation, uh, my job is to try to reform juvenile systems and to help decision makers at the state level and also at the local level working with juvenile courts to make better decisions. Well, I'll tell you what, they couldn't have anybody better in that position, Tanya, than yourself. Uh, that's to be commended. Uh, and this is why, ladies and gentlemen of America, that it is important who you vote for in your counties, in your districts, and all these things, judges and, and DAs and all these things, because it affects the country. It affects communities. And uh, right now I would like to introduce Judge Colbert. Uh, she's joining us tonight on this program, a, a judge uh, doing her due diligence to ensure justice to the juvenile world, if you will. And Judge Colbert, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. We appreciate you so much. And uh, I'd like you to introduce yourself, uh, Judge, to, the, to our listeners. And exactly as we address this issue of juvenile injustice, what maybe you have seen that is troubling and is causing you to even do due diligence in making sure a change uh, definitely comes about. Great. Thank you. Um, I've been a juvenile court judge in Chatham County, Savannah, Georgia, for the last almost four years. Um, and one of the things that's most troubling to me uh, is that oftentimes children, particularly black children, African-American children, are referred to juvenile court for age-appropriate behaviors, um, typically in school, that uh, when I was in school were not referred to court um, and were handled in the, in the school. Um, and as a result of these referrals, children are often put on probation, given a list of do's and don'ts, and when they violate those do's and don'ts, they wind up being pulled deeper into a system that they shouldn't have been in in the first place. Um, and it has a very negative impact on their future 
um, you know, school failure results, um, disconnected from pro-social peers and activities, um, and quite frankly affects their self-esteem. So for many reasons, I'm very passionate about keeping those children out of our system um, and pushing them back where they should be, you know, in school, in the community, and have their age-appropriate, non-community safety-type issues dealt with in the community and not in the court. No, absolutely. And I'll tell you what, our young people are already very, you know, our adults are scared of going into the system. Folks that have a developed mind that are are troubled. How do we, as a country, set our children, and and I want to get your thoughts on this, Judge, and Tanya, uh, and I'll I'll address this to Tanya first, and Judge, I'd like to get your response on that. How How do we put children... We, you've heard the reports, the stories, and the horrors of solitary confinement. The fact that the President of the United States says we have to end solitary confinement in some of our facilities. I believe his last action was also in the, in the juvenile uh, 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 systems, a, a, a juvenile penitentiaries or whatever you want to call it. He stepped out as the President to say this cannot happen. Where did we, where did we go wrong on this ship? Where did we steer wrong? that we started to believe solitary confinement was okay, let alone not okay for adults, but we put our children there? Tanya, your thoughts on that? So my thoughts are that this, this pendulum has been swinging back and forth for decades. It really started in the late 80s and early 90s when the um, media started um, reporting um, and causing fear around the idea of a super predator, that there's a super predator coming and it's these kids who are wilding out. It really happened um, somewhat around the time of the Central Park um, rape incident, which we later learned uh, was completely um, pinned on these kids who didn't do it. But right. that, that started a um, fear of juveniles committing infractions. And then in response to that, the juvenile justice system started um, mirroring what was happening in adult systems. They completely discarded the idea of rehabilitation. They completely discarded the differences between a young person in their what's going on in their mind and an adult. And what we started to see was razor wire fences, locked cells, um, and solitary confinement being used as a way to control um, kids and com- completely ignoring their educational needs and their rehabilitative needs. Now, although incarceration has really been declining over the past decade or so, it's actually dropped by about 47% between 2013 and, and, or 2003 and 2013, we are still seeing way too many kids locked up, and we have not gone back to redesign the idea of what a out-of-home intervention should look like and who that should be used for. So we see lots of kids getting locked up for nonviolent offenses, as uh, Judge Colbert said, sort of age-appropriate misbehavior that would have never been something they would have to get locked up for. But as a result, when you end up in that juvenile institution and all you have is a hammer, then every kid looks like a nail and they start using things like solitary confinement. So that's, that's what I think is happening. And, and also it really needs to be underscored the 
ongoing disparities. That this really should be considered a civil rights issue. And it's another reason I'm so passionate about it, because although incarceration has declined for juveniles, the, the disparities have actually increased by 15% in the past 10 years. Wow. And so that number is astounding. disproportionately impacting youth of color, black and Latino kids. No, absolutely. Judge, your thoughts? Uh, well, I agree with, with Tanya and um, the, you know, the, the, the disproportionate, um, I guess, use of the criminal justice system it is something that is really concerning for, for, you know, young people of color. It's really concerning to me. Um, I don't know much about the solitary confinement piece because I'm on the front end, um, and quite frankly, thanks to Tanya's help through the Annie Casey Foundation, I, I'm proud to say that my court is doing a much better job of um, minimizing the use of secure confinement or detention or incarceration for young people. Um, but I will say, though, that, you know, having um, young people brought to the court, I think Tanya is absolutely right. We have uh, very little tools in our box. And so, you know, when you have a lot of hammers, you're right. We're, people get treated, young people get treated like males. And I think one of the things that's most concerning to me um, in terms of the disproportionality is having so many police officers in the schools, um, you know, where children of color go to, you know, attend or enrolled, which leads to, again, officers using the tools that they have, um, which arrest powers, uh, leads to those age-appropriate misbehaviors being treated as criminal or delinquent matters, and those children referred to the court. Um, sure which then leads to the, all of the, all the other host of problems that happen when children who are involved in a, a juvenile justice system um, have to include things like solitary confinement once they get put in a system that really the courts in, in our jurisdiction do not run. Um, so I can't set policies for the detention center. I just have to make sure that I do my job and not have the wrong kids, which, quite frankly, the way they're set up, all of them are wrong for that type of setting. Um you know, placed in those environments. Sure, and, and, and Judge, we commend you for your service uh, and your work. Uh, we need more judges like you, uh, to be honest with you, because uh, those types of things have to be taken into consideration. I will tell you this. There was a time in this country where if you saw an officer in a school, you felt safe. Yay, that you know, they're there to keep me safe, to protect me. In our country today, with the Michael Browns and the Walter Scotts and the Eric Gardners, and we have a sense of fear as a community and a culture that am I safe with a police officer when our young people are dying daily at the hands of corrupt cops? And they're, again, they're not all corrupt. They're not all bad. But what we have seen in the last year and a half is overwhelming. Right. Then. If you put cops in a situation, as the judge alludes to, uh, in situations in schools and, and with you know kids of color, do you honestly believe that is going to help, or does it call, does it is it as putting uh, gasoline on the fire? Uh, that that's troubling to me. Uh, Cliff, right. you had a comment. Yeah, and and on that note, Lamont, you know, you have the kids that they they see the police officer in the school. They've seen what's going on in the news. 
all they've seen uh, as far as police in the in in our you know the current news is is about brutality. Sure. And then they face the same thing in school. I mean, we all saw the video with the police officer and the young lady sitting in the chair, and he picks her up with the desk, breaks her arm, and breaks her arm. And then they take these same children. And, and to me, I mean, uh, frankly, to me, that's abuse of a child that and, and that officer should have been more than fired. But that's a that's a whole nother subject. But then they take that child and say, now we're going to take you to the juvenile court and say how you uh, you now assaulted a police officer. You're violent. You need to go to prison. And uh, Judge Colbert, I, I, I get, you know, I've seen the article articles where you know they have juveniles that have life without parole that that is the sentence they're given life without parole before they even turn 18 and i know in the federal system uh with adult prisons that you know they say mandatory minimums minimums and the judge does not have a choice but to apply those mandatory minimums as laid out by the law in the juvenile court and uh, you guys said, you know, they give you a hammer. That's the only tool they give you in your toolbox. What what would you as a judge say, hey, these are the tools that I need. Instead of telling me that I have to give this kid a sentence, what would be the things that you would say, give me this in my toolbox so that I can apply it to these children that, you know, mostly need help instead of incarceration? Well, it's interesting that you bring that up. Georgia just underwent, uh, effective in 2014, a a total overhaul of its juvenile justice laws. So I do have more in my toolbox now um, so that we have a lot more discretion in juvenile court than, say, the adult courts as it relates to how to deal with a child once they've been found to have committed an offense. So, for instance, um, I can now, for children who um, commit an offense, and I see that the underlying issues really are about this child not getting the support and supervision or or services that they need. Or, quite frankly, sometimes I have a child that has mental health issues and things that the parent just cannot safely manage at home. So instead of just being able to put that child in a confined setting, I can make findings and then have that child placed in the custody custody of the Department of Family and Children's Services if that's what it takes in order right. for that child to get the services that they need. We didn't always have those options before. So, again, we just, you know, you have a child that's acting out, a child that needs, uh, say, residential treatment or even just needs to be in a residential setting where they have more stability and more access to services because we keep referring to systems or a system, but we really don't have a system. We have these these silos, so that if a child is referred from school for misbehaving and they come to court, um, we don't always have, say, mental health services to match those needs. So um, we can do some more creative things. One of the issues, though, that the Annie E. Casey Foundation has been helping us with through Tanya is trying to create more tools within the community so that I don't have to put that child in a residential placement, even through DFACs, um, because of the services that they need. So trying to provide a way to get those tools in the community and hopefully keep some of these kids from coming to court in the first place in order right. to get those services. If we can, if the community does a better job of identifying what the needs are before that child acts out in a way that results in charges, 
Um, but but we are, I think, under our new law, it gives us the judges more authority to really peel back the layers of the onion to find out what's going on with this child. I see a lot of kids who've been traumatized, and traumatized kids, you know, don't always behave well. And it makes sense. If they've been hurt, they're going to hurt and, and act out. Um, and, and, you know, before we really didn't have a mechanism to say, okay, this child has done these things that may be delinquent acts. However, the underlying causes are their trauma, their untreated trauma because of abuse and neglect that they've suffered. So now I've got to try to address that, and that's what I'm going to focus on. And, and our laws now give me more coverage to do that. Oh, um, that's yeah, that's awesome. So, so Georgia, yeah, so Georgia has, has joined, I don't know, the number of states that have done this. Um, so I feel in, in a much better position than my adult court counterpart. No, absolutely. And, and uh, I'll tell you what, uh, and Tanya and, and, and Judge Colbert, I'm sure, uh, you know, when I was coming up, uh, you know, if I was acting out in school, the only thing I needed a teacher to say, I just talked to your mother. Uh, right. That was fear enough for me, you know, and they said, no, we had a nice conversation, Lamont, and your mom has assured us that this will not be a continued problem. Right. And I'll tell you, mom did the reassuring when I got home. But I think <laughs> that speaks to the importance of community, as, as, you, as, you, as you and Tanya both allude to here. Community is critical, and bringing community together to discuss uh, these issues, I think that's where it starts in the ground, in, in the you know, in the really the root of the issue. Let's get these parents in a town hall meeting, so to speak. Let's talk to them. Let let's hear from the judge. Let's hear from Tanya. Uh, you folks who are involved in this, I think that's critically important because without right. knowledge, we're going nowhere. And you right. folks, uh, Judge Colbert and, and Tanya, are in a position to instill that knowledge. And I think that's very, very, you know, that's critically important. Dennis, you had a, a, a statement. First of all, I want to, excuse me, I want to commend uh, the judge and uh, Tanya for uh, what you guys are doing. I mean, it's awesome. Uh, but as, as as the speaking, as, as everyone was talking, I was thinking about how uh, it's, it's like we're shifting, we're passing on responsibilities. Uh, if, if the parents don't, are not enabled or empowered to do what they need to do at home with the children. As I was listening to Lamont, what happens is it rolls, it rolls over into our school system. And then our school, our our teachers begin to try to take on the parent, you know, become the uh, parent. And then if the parent, if, if the teacher can't fix it, then we push it to our law enforcers and they become the parents. And then we got this, Sure. It, you know, it just it keeps rolling and rolling and rolling, and before you know it, of course, our our children are locked up for you know life, or or they're in prison for a long amount of time. So I guess my concern is that uh, I was listening to Lamar how he's talking about community. We got to get our parents. We got to educate them. Make sure they do. We don't want to take your role away from you. We just want to assist you, and that way the parents understand that yeah, you awesome. still. You you still have uh, you, you know you you still got to do your part. You got to raise the children up right. You got to teach them right from wrong because we can't just depend on our, 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 our the system to take care of our children. No, that's absolutely right, Dennis. And uh, I echo those comments. And uh, Tanya, 
and 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 Judge uh, Colbert, we were talking earlier, uh, and I, and we we just touched on this a little bit, um, in in regards to the young man, uh, Khalif Browder, uh, sixteen years old, never charged with the crime in 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 New York, sent to Rikers Island, a uh, Rikers Island, excuse me, a place of holding, for three years. This man took his life. Uh, Judge Colbert, when you hear something like that, you know, we're not talking about the local country club holding uh, facility in Beverly Hills, California. We're talking about Rikers Island, who is notoriously known for some of the most horrific violence in our nation. How do we put a 16-year-old boy without being charged with a crime to hold him there? And I believe he was in solitary confinement. How do we get away with that as a country? And who is accountable for the life of this young man? Judge? I, I, yeah, I, you know, that, I, I think all of us, you know, one of the things that we didn't talk about, but one of the things that also impacts um, what happens to young people who get brought into this system, um, you know, the quality of, of um, indigent defense. You know, most of the young people that I see are impoverished. Um, most of their uh, representation is by court-appointed attorneys. Um, and I have seen a huge disparity uh, in terms of the, the effectiveness and the quality of that representation because what we know about a system, I mean, any system you have, there are going to be some flaws. And I think good advocacy is what helps keep the system honest. Um, that would have never happened to that child if he had effective representation. And I don't know much about New York's system, so I don't know at what stage he was provided with an attorney if he can't afford one. Um, But I I think that's a problem when he can just languish um, in in detention. I also think in terms of systems where, where jails or holding facilities I also think there has to be some internal safeguards so that persons who are being held pre-trial, um, that maybe even the jailers have a way to notify the courts that, hey, this child or this person has been here, you know, 60 days, no court date, no, no, you know, so that so that there's a safeguard, some safeguards there to avoid someone falling through the cracks. No, absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, happens, you know. Yeah, no, no, I agree with you. Um, you, you ladies got a, a few more minutes to come back with us on the other side of this break. Um, sure, sure. Okay, we'll, and I promise we won't keep you long, uh, Judge uh, Colbert and, and Tanya. We'll be definitely respectful of your time. We got a couple of more things uh, we want to discuss with you, um, and we're gonna we're gonna bring you back here on the other side of this break, ladies and gentlemen of America. We have been honored and privileged to have Judge Colbert from Savannah, Georgia. Uh, as well as Tanya Washington. These are two ladies. I'll tell you what, uh, we need to make some uh, clones of these women uh, and spread them across this nation because they're doing things to definitely help our future. And who that is, that would be the children of America. We're coming right back, ladies and gentlemen. This is AJC Radio as we shine the light on juvenile injustice and we seek for those answers that are so desperately needed. We're coming right back here on AJC Radio. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? 
The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. In Delaware County, more than 200 lives have been saved from an opioid overdose by police with the use of naloxin. I am District Attorney Jack Whalen. I, along with Delaware County Council, invite you to be part of the solution to the drug overdose epidemic by bringing your unused and expired medications to Rose Tree Park on Saturday, April 23rd from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. Join me at Community Day and enjoy live music, free food, and family activities while helping to make our community drug-free. Community Day is brought to you by the Heroin Task Force and Partners for Success Coalition and funded by the Delaware County Office of Behavioral Health Division of Drug and Alcohol Programs. Here are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to 1 out of 17. Now here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are 1 out of 3. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated. But one thing is clear. There's racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of American drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of the people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white ones in state prisons and in federal prisons. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparity in America's war on drugs is one big reason that one out of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen of America. I'm Lamont Banks. You have launched and arrived at AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. And tonight we are dealing with an issue called juvenile injustice that's running rampant here on the streets of America. And we've been privileged tonight to have uh, the Honorable Judge Colbert, Tanya Washington, and uh, as I said uh, prior to the break, ladies that are out here committed, I believe, uh, to bringing justice to the judicial process and helping our children uh, to achieve all that needs to be done. Welcome back, Judge Colbert and Tanya Washington. Welcome back. Thank you. Okay, and we promise uh, we're going to be respectful of your time. We know on the East Coast it's about 9 o'clock. A couple more things we'd like to talk about. Um, and um, I'll tell you what. Uh, we talked earlier in regards to uh, Caleb Router and uh, – uh, talking about again what he suffered and, and as 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 what I heard from both of you, uh, something that's that's really troubling. Uh, 
Uh, and, uh, Judge Colbert, you alluded to the fact that maybe there needs to be even the prison guards uh, that can maybe alert someone to say, look, this guy's been here, this young lady has been here too long. And I think the problem is, uh, Judge and Tanya, is this. Our corruption has squeaked into the, in the, into the prison system with the corruption of guards, with the corruptions of wardens. I mean, you're talking about a mess that needs a huge overhaul and a cleanup. We have to start properly from the very foundation and tear the foundation up and say, look, let's lay a new foundation because that's the only way you're going to get rid of the termites. You're going to have to sometimes tear the whole foundation and rebuild. Uh, uh, Tanya, your thoughts on that? So, yeah, I think that we have to distinguish between the systems that the kids are in, adult versus juvenile, and then pre-trial versus what what happens if they're found responsible. But the reality is that whether it's in a short-term detention facility or a long-term juvenile correctional institution, juvenile prison, that uh, they're rampant with abuse. The Annie Casey Foundation did a report last year looking at maltreatment in juvenile institutions. And since the year 2000, there have been over 30 states that have documented evidence of severe abuse in at least one juvenile facility. And what they call abuse was physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. One in ten young people were reporting having been sexually abused in one of these facilities. So that's a huge system issue that you're pointing to. In addition to that, even when they're not abused, when they are incarcerated for any length of time, they're losing their educational opportunities, they're being um, held in traumatic um, environments, and as a result, they are coming out, coming back home into the community undereducated and less likely to be able to get a job and become a productive citizen. So what we're doing is over by pushing too many kids from school into juvenile institutions is that we're making it less likely for young people to take care of themselves and their families and more likely that they commit um, offenses so that they can make money. So what we're really doing is impacting, um, detrimentally impacting community safety. So none of the response system makes any sense in terms of what we're hoping to achieve. No, absolutely. And all of that, wow. I mean, those numbers uh, of, of that type of harsh abuse, uh, in our system tells us just how far we've got to go. Um, and what I'd like to do, uh, and I'm gonna, what I'm going to do, I'm going to play a clip. I want, I want to get your perspective on We talked about the African-American uh, disparities uh, in our prisons, uh, and this is with our children. I'm going to get your thoughts on it. I'm going to give you two ladies an opportunity to close out and say uh, uh, your final thoughts uh, to our listeners, okay? Let's, let's go to the clip now. Okay. With our white students, we find that the response is, let's, let's find out what supports you need. A black student who is allegedly acting out in class, that behavior is immediately criminalized. When it comes to black students, the reaction is often that those students should know better, that they're older than they, than they appear, that we don't view black students as children. We view them as little adults. A lot of folks still believe that if you lock up a youth for a while, regardless of his illness, that he will learn that when he is released, 
you shouldn't act that way again. I always like to liken it to if you have a kid who has an epileptic seizure, are you really going to lock them up for a few days to teach them not to have another seizure? We routinely in this country put children in solitary confinement. Other countries consider the practice torture, but we do it with regularity. Once a prisoner gets into solitary confinement, usually because of impulsive, emotionally volatile kind of behavior, um, once they get in, they get worse, and then they never get out. 60% of the kids that are committing suicide in prisons are ones that have been put into solitary confinement. Quite frankly, if locking a child up taught them a lesson so they'd never commit a crime, we would be the safest country in the world because we lock up so many children. But clearly, experience shows that doesn't work. Wow. And when you hear that, Judge Colbert, I mean, you're, I cannot imagine the, the enormous responsibility that lies on your shoulders. Every day you go in there knowing that your decisions will affect the future of these kids. How do you manage that responsibility, Judge, when you hear something like what you just heard? I would presume it gives you an awesome uh, sense of responsibility to make sure that you do everything you can to do your job and do it well. Your thoughts, Judge? Uh, it does. Uh, you know, listening to that, um, that is where my court was um, just not even a good full three years ago, um, heavily relying on sanctions for behaviors um, and, you know, that, that children engaged in and, and seeing bad outcomes um, as a result. One thing that guides me in addition to the information that I've now been exposed to through the efforts of the Annie Casey Foundation to include, you know, brain science, you know, how do children and adolescents, how do their brains function, which explains a lot about their behaviors. Um, you know, and the other thing that I do is I, I always apply the My Child Test, Um you know, so that when I'm thinking about how do I impact, what decisions I need to make to try to improve the outcomes for this child in addition to outcomes for this community, I always think about that. Um, even when I'm applying the law, when I'm looking at, um, so this child is acting out. The first thing I, I ask, and, and Tanya has been helpful in, in helping guide this process, so does this child's behavior pose a risk to community safety? So if that question is no, then detention is off the table from from the jump. So then it becomes how do I address these behaviors to help this child get on track, which is always the underlying question. The only issue then is do I even need to be dealing with a restrictive setting for this child? And when you start the conversation in your mind that way, very few children qualify for confinement. Um and and yep. then you just start figuring out, you know, how do I help this child? Are there educational issues? Are there mental health issues that are not being addressed? Are there trauma issues that are not being addressed? Um, and then if it starts to help guide my decisions 
in a way that makes sense. Does this child even need to be in juvenile court? You know, so, so yeah. So for me, hearing that just reinforces what I've learned, that we do rely not just too heavily on incarceration. I think we rely too heavily on the court and the the justice or injustice system, however you want to call it, to try to deal with some of these issues that, that, that in many cases don't need to be dealt with in the court for most children. No, absolutely. And, Tanya, with all the work that you've done, when you hear that and those numbers, and they're talking about – they're not talking about – I mean, suicide is horrible whether you're 14 or whether you're 60. It's a loss of life. When you hear that and hear those numbers about the children, the future of America, given your passion, what does that do to you? Well, I tell you, it keeps me up at night a lot and and why I um, really want to create a lot more awareness about what's happening to our children and disproportionately to black and brown children across this country. We don't have a kid problem. We have an adult problem because adults are failing to respond appropriately to youth misbehavior. There's a difference between normal adolescent misbehavior and extreme behavior. But what we have are extreme adult responses. And um, we, have, we have to address it. We have to create solutions. But I do want to highlight some of what um, Judge Colbert and the fellow judges in uh, Savannah are doing in mm-hmm. partnership with the police department and the schools. They are creating alternative options in the community one that will reduce the number of kids who are unjustly referred to the juvenile justice system, the schools, um, and the courts are working on developing restorative, a restorative practice approach. They're also looking to pool their resources and join with businesses to create a jobs intervention that will be pro- pro- uh, providing a, um, a teaching opportunity for young people who really need to learn the kind of skills that will get them on the right track. And they're also looking to create a community resource center that would sort of triage and assess needs of kids. So when they do have needs, they won't have to go into the juvenile justice system to get them addressed. And that's where I think you start building solutions. They are analyzing their data. They are sharing their data. And um, someone said earlier, creating a community collaborative response Well, that's what Savannah did. In October, they held a community safety forum, um, and it was well attended by a few hundred people across the community, and they shared their data, and they invited people to the table, including parents, to problem solve, and they're in the midst of developing those solutions right now. So I think that Savannah and Chatham Juvenile Court will be a model for the country to look at in terms of how to effectively work together to create interventions that allow kids to um, stay in the community and get on track towards a bright future as opposed to committing them to state facilities where they're going to be traumatized and, and come out worse. That's just, you know what, uh, that's absolutely awesome. Uh, we need to, can you guys wrap up Savannah and come out here to Colorado and uh, transfer <laughs> that type of enthusiasm to us? Uh, I'll tell you what, folks, uh, Judge Colbert, uh, Tanya Washington, 
Uh, Tanya, we talked today about the initiative that Just Calls has initiated called Let's Talk. Uh, and uh, my intention, and I'm going to ask that you talk to the judge offline about that, you know, you guys are as good as peanut butter and jelly. You seem to need to be together uh, for what you folks are doing, and uh, uh, we want to talk about that. I think what you said moments ago in, in regards to the, you folks are a model that the other people in the United States and other cities and states should model themselves after. Uh, this is absolutely commendable. I mean, I'll tell you what, I got nothing but the utmost respect uh, for you, Judge Colbert and Tanya, for what you guys collectively are doing down there. And, uh, you know, Judge Colbert, I, I just have to commend you. I mean, there's so few times that you hear a judge that uh, takes the common sense approach that, sure, you have the law, and we, we understand that judges have to abide with that, by that, but to take a common sense approach and say, you know, does this kid belong in to be locked up? Does this kid is what this kid uh, has, you know, has done? Does this kid need to be locked up? And then to add on top of the common sense approach, some compassion. It is so sure. uh, unheard of for a judge to say, well. Uh, then I think about my kid. I think what would I want as a mother? I think if this was my kid and this kid needed help, how would I, as a parent, want my kid to be treated? That is so commendable because you do not hear it. So many times you hear uh, you know, judicial officers just say, well, I grew a tough skin and I had to apply the law. But there come a part of that is to say, there's some common sense and we're talking about children here we're talking about we're talking about our future leaders in this country we cannot just lock them up and throw away the key and say oh well they made their decision no they didn't they don't have the proper state of mind they're they are not adults and someone has to look out for them and i commend you for for taking that position judge colbert well thank you so much and i have to just uh, publicly, you know, thank the Annie Casey Foundation and specifically Tanya and the team that she has assembled over the last, I don't even know how long it's been, a year and a half, two years, to work with us um, because this job probably would have been undoable for me without the resources and the support that they have provided. Um, when I started, I was extremely frustrated about what I saw, knew that we needed to do things differently and did not have the tools, quite frankly, to to bring the, the needed change about. And so I'm just very thankful uh, for people like Tanya who have a passion for this and, and an ability to bring people together in a meaningful way. And so I'm also thankful for this opportunity to share, you know, some of my experience and my story. And I, and I do want to say this, though, I, I'm, I'm dismayed that, um, you you feel as if I'm sort of an anomaly, I guess, as far as my fellow judges, because I don't. We work with people, whether you work with children or, or whomever, and I um, and I think we have to remember that um, that at the end of the day, we're dealing with people's lives, and it should matter. Things should bother you, and quite frankly, you should always ask, "How would I want to be treated, or my family or loved one to be treated under these yeah. circumstances, and to be responded to in a way that is compassionate." Uh, and at the same time, looking to 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 be you know uh, solution oriented. Um, so I don't know any other way to be. 
Right. I mean, that's awesome. And, uh, you know, we need more judges like you, Judge, uh, to be honest with you. And, you know, as you were uh, uh, giving the accolades to Tanya, being able to bring people together and work, Tanya, have you considered jumping in the presidential race of 2016? Me <laughs> 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 too. I like to stay a little closer to the ground. <laughs> you know, hey, we need we need that type of leadership. Oh, I'll tell you, in definitely. this country, and uh, who knows, Tanya, we may see you on the ballot here in a, in a few years. But uh, ladies, uh, I'm going to be in touch with you offline. Uh, and Tanya, I, I like both of you, ladies. If you'd like to give people contact information, Judge, I don't know if you will be able to do that or not, I have. but. You do. Okay. Judge, uh, why don't you tell the folks how to get a hold of you and uh, if they have any questions, if they want to work with you in this initiative to help the young people of America, how can they get a hold of you? Uh, Yeah, they can, you know, they can call my office, uh, area code 912-652-6752. I don't mind sharing information, our experiences. I'm hoping we can be a model to help other courts across the country to figure out a way to do better. So I'm more than willing to, to do that. All right. Good deal with that. And Tanya, uh, how can yes. the folks get hold of you? Your uh, resume is extensive, so uh, talk to the people, how they can reach you, how they can be a part of your uh, advocacy and what you're doing. Uh, let the folks know how they can reach you. Sure. So I, I have a blog, justicecorner.com, and through there you can send emails. There's also justicecornerblog at gmail.com. Um, those are the best two places to get a message to me. You can, you can sign up to get my blogs, which usually come out a couple of times a month, at justicecorner.com. Okay, and thank you. Ladies, I can't tell you, we feel like we've been in a refreshing rain tonight. Do you ever have a rain you just stand in and soak it up? Uh that's what we've done tonight with you ladies and the knowledge that you've given our listeners tonight and the information. I think it's critical. I think it motivates people. I think it encourages people. I think it inspires people to say, look, you know, down there in Georgia and, and wherever, Tanya, your travels take you, uh, things are happening. Things are going on. And we, uh, we want to say at AJC Radio, you have attained an ally in AJC Radio and a Just Cause organization as we continue together to make a difference in this country. Thank you, ladies, so much for uh, spending time with us this evening, uh, and we will definitely be in touch with you offline, okay? Thank you for having us, and thank you for your interest in this issue and for shining a light on a topic that most people don't are, are unaware of. So thank you so much. You're very thank welcome. And Tanya and Judge, we're going to put this information on our website, what you folks have done collectively and what you've attained uh, over this period of time and bringing uh, the change that has happened there in Georgia. We will post it. We will tweet it. We will Facebook it. And anything else we can do social media-wise, uh, we're going to get the word out about what you folks are doing down there in Georgia, okay? All right. Thank you. Take care. Have a good night. All right. Thank you. Good night. Good night. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. On the other side of this break, we continue the discussion, juvenile injustice. And apparently with these two ladies... If we can spread the wealth, if you will, to spread the love or the follow the motto, if you will, of what these ladies are doing, we may have a fighting chance to turn this country around. We're coming right back. This is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. We'll be right back.
The United States of America incarcerates more people than any other country in the world. In fact, the U.S. hosts more prison inmates than all other developed nations combined. As of 2010, the world population was over 6.8 billion people, with an estimated 9.8 million in jail. This figure, compiled by the International Center for Prison Studies, refers both to individuals held in jail awaiting trial and inmates serving time after sentencing. So there are 9.8 million human beings on planet Earth living inside of cages that we know of. In 2010, the U.S. was home to about 309 million people, 4.5% of the world's total population, but housed 23% of the world's prisoners. So take a moment to think about what this means. It means we imprison more people than enormous autocratic countries like China. We imprison more people than Russia. Compared to the size of our population, our rate of imprisonment dwarfs our closest allies, like the United Kingdom, France, and Canada. As of 2010, there were over 1.6 million post-trial inmates serving sentences in America's state and federal facilities. This number does not include those being detained pre-trial or those on probation. The most unique feature of incarceration in America is the large and active role of our federal government. In most countries, crime is reacted to at the local or regional level, whereas the American government finances and legislates a significant portion of law enforcement at the national level. State governments still do their fair share of incarceration, though. California and Texas incarcerate more than other states with over 171,000 inmates each. Florida is a close third with over 103,000 prisoners. But no single state locks up more people than the federal government with over 208,000 inmates. Perhaps the nickname Land of the Free, Home of the Brave, should be updated. Though I suppose you need to be brave to endure the highest likelihood of incarceration the world has ever known. Prisons are not what we think about when we think of America, and they shouldn't have to be. A free nation shouldn't imprison so many people, and a fiscally responsible nation can't afford to. With close to $40 billion a year in state correctional spending, the financial costs are obvious and staggering alone. But the human costs are often underappreciated. 1.6 million fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of American families are incarcerated. It's time for people to realize that the criminal justice system in America is desperately in need of reform. I can solve difficult problems for a Fortune 500 company. I can run a successful business. I can manage your home improvements. I can publicize your message. I can motivate your audience. I can put my military experience to work for your company. I can teach your children. I can boost your bottom line. I can add value to your workplace. I could be a loyal and productive employee. But I can't put my skills to work for your organization if I'm not given the opportunity. If you don't recognize my talents and ability. If you don't hire me. If you don't have an open mind and a workplace that's open to everyone. If you don't realize that America works best when everybody works. What can you do? What can you do? What can you do? You can remember that it works. It's what people can do. It's what people can do that matters. Nearly 50 million Americans have disabilities. Capitalize on their talents with employment practices that benefit everyone. Learn more at whatcanyoudocampaign.org. Over a million people are sitting in the prisons of America 
for nonviolent offenses. That's why I'm asking you to join the American Civil Liberties Union and help us in the fight to end mass incarceration. We spend over $80 billion a year incarcerating people. Alternatives to prison, like community service, drug treatment, and rehabilitation, costs less and can turn lives around. It's time for fair justice. It's time for smart justice. And we need your help. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You have, uh, if you're wondering what's coming up out of your computer right now, and maybe the receiver, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. And I'll tell you tonight, we have got really uh, ourselves into unfamiliar waters, but we have learned some things this evening in regards to people that are making a difference. And in regards to juvenile injustice, our kids being locked up, uh, over-criminalized, excuse me, criminalized. How do you say that? Help me with that, folks. little tongue twisted tonight. They're, being, they're basically being uh, criminalized for things that we did as children that we never would have gone to jail for. Number one, you're never going into a courtroom That's for. Right. How is, that is amazing to me. As I said earlier to the guests, you know, my court judge and jury was my mother. Uh, and I'll tell you what, that's not a woman I wanted to face if I was in trouble. And, uh, but you know what? That type of parenting, that type of leadership, at least you, you weren't worried about getting shot in the back. You know, you may, get a, you know, you get, you may have to get dad's belt out the closet, uh, but you're not getting shot in the back. Today, consequences are far greater. We're talking life-altering uh, situations and punishment that affects children the rest of their lives, and uh, I think to what the point of, of Tanya and Judge Colbert were, were were making so very very real to me was that there are steps and things being done right now, not tomorrow, not next week, right now. Let's get this done. And I had an opportunity to talk to Tanya a few moments ago after going off uh, going to that break. And did you know she was appointed by the governor? Uh, there in Georgia to come together at the request of the governor to bring juvenile situations, judges, law, with, you know, legislators, whoever, come together and let's make some changes. It speaks a little bit, quite a bit rather, Dennis, to the work ethic and the passion that Tanya Washington brings to this situation. Your thoughts on that? Oh, it was awesome. I'm telling you, I truly enjoyed her as a guest. I mean, wow. I mean, that, that, that takes a person that can bring judges and, you know, our community, the parents, uh, all these different entities that work together for our juvenile, for our children. And then to bring it together and, and, and create a model for other states to, uh, you know, go, you know, use uh, to, to make their justice, their, their juvenile justice system work a lot better. And I'll I tell you again, 
commendable. I'm glad she was on the show along with the judge. It was just awesome. Man, so a lot of our information, Dennis, couldn't say it better than myself. A lot of information, and folks, uh, if we're lucky here that just calls, uh, we're going to definitely probably have an opportunity to have one of those two ladies here for the Let's Talk Town Forum. Uh, stand by and stand, stay tuned for further information and details on that. And I, I, I told uh, uh, Tanya, I said, hey, you know, I, I said it on the, right there. You know, peanut butter and jelly is normally when you're going in the kitchen for lunch. But uh, you don't make a jelly sandwich without, without peanut butter. And I said, you two ladies are just as equally important uh, to the process. And uh, we'd love to have them both here uh, for Let's Talk. And uh, we're going to be going to work on that. And uh, we look forward uh, to that conversation Uh, But right now, let's go to a clip speaking further about juvenile injustice and what we are doing to address these issues. It's overwhelming. Let's play that clip now. The vast majority of kids in juvenile jail don't commit a violent crime. In fact, many are locked up for things that aren't even crimes for adults. Skipping school, running away from home, or missing curfew. Even those accused of more serious crimes are still children. I could never imagine my life if I haven't been incarcerated as a kid. Savannah first went to juvenile prison in Ohio when she was 14. Yeah, I was young. I was young in there. And I just, I really grew up in there. This is her in 2009. I definitely feel sad about missing out on like school games, stuff like that. You know, being able to create memories for like my my family. Like my mom tell me sometimes like I robbed her the chance of uh, raising me. Ohio's juvenile prisons run by the Department of Youth Services were some of the bleakest places to be a kid locked up in America. I saw like a lot of girls cut in and trying to commit suicide and very, very depressed girls and stuff like that in there. That was something I had never, you know, experienced before. Savannah's experience can be traced to what was happening in the country when she was just an infant. In California, three children, all under the age of 10, were arrested this week after the near-fatal beating of an infant. In Chicago, a 10- and 11-year-old drop a 5-year-old from a high-rise to his death. Another 14-year-old arrested for gang rape. In the mid-90s, America became terrified of a new brand of child criminal. Super predators come in every race, creed, and zip code. They have literally no concept of the future, either their own or anyone else's. Today, they're just children, but will they be predators tomorrow? The country went into a panic, and lawmakers responded with what seemed like a simple solution. Lock them up. There are no violent offenses that are juvenile. You rape somebody, you're an adult. You shoot somebody, you're an adult. I'm directing the FBI and other investigative agencies to target gangs that involve juveniles in violent crime and to seek authority to prosecute as adults teenagers who maim and kill like adults. The number of kids locked up in America peaked in the year 2000, hitting 109,000 kids. We can expect crime wave of juvenile violence over the next 10 years. But the predictions were wrong. There were no super predators. And there you have it. Uh, Dennis, when you hear those numbers, 
wow. Um, America got it wrong is what they did. And they're facing the consequences of that let those legislations, the emotional reaction. I don't care how you slice the pie. A juvenile, 10, you heard in that clip, three kids 10 years old are not capable. There's something, as, as Cliff alluded to earlier, there is something wrong. There is, it, the, the problem goes so much deeper yes. than, oh my goodness, they did an act. Or they, what prompt? You have to ask those questions with children. Because they don't have the capability. Their brain, Cliff, is not That's even right. fully developed to make a conscious choice or decision. Right. They, the, the concept of reality and um, consequences is still so, so far from a reality to a child's mind. And for, in, in that clip, for them to make statements like expect... Uh, a wave, uh, you know, uh, uh, expect a juvenile crime wave and these juvenile super predators. How do you, what is a juvenile super predator? It's just making stuff up, saying this is going to happen, and, and the outcome is laws that were put in place to basically lock our kids up for decades and decades when they're became no super predator no juvenile super predators there became no juvenile crime waves that was a moment a glimpse in time where suddenly america got a glimpse of this is life in in the ghetto this is life but then as the parents came and said hey you this is not you are not going to let their prophecy so-called come true that you're going to become a super predator the parents stepped in to say this is not what you're going to become you can be more and gave them hope and that is that's what's missing uh you know from the american people that you know america as a whole does not give the inner city youth hope to say well you can be whatever you want to be sure the the suburban uh child that has every that grew up with a silver spoon they tell him you can be president one day well who's telling that to the uh, to the to the the urban kid that's growing up in the project, who's telling him you can be anything that you want, you can have anything that you want in life? The parents have to take the step to say, look, you're just as valuable as that kid who was born with a silver spoon, and you can grow up to accomplish things. And as that happens, then this fa- this fallacy of a super predator and a juvenile crime wave that just began to dwindle. Well, you heard the comment by the gentleman earlier, or the young lady earlier, rather on the clip. She said. If you're black, you're an animal. Yeah. You're an adult. Get to prison. If you're white, let's take a look and research what's going on with you. Right. Let's see what the problem is here. That's not equal justice. No. Lisa, your thoughts? Justice has been far from equal for a long, long time. That's not – I mean, it's not news. It's not something new that we're just learning for the first time. Justice has been – off balance, off tilter for quite some time. Uh, you're, I mean, we're all aware that uh, young African Americans are going to face more challenges than their counterparts that are Caucasian because that's the way that the system is set up. That's that's the way. That's what they. That's what the way they lay it out. That's the way they set it up. It's the way they put it out there. That's what you're going to have to deal with. And I think if we 
stop, if we don't realize that that's just the way they expect us to have to deal with it, then you're going to be really, really shocked and really surprised by things that you should be prepared for. You need to prepare yourself for that because that's the way it is right now. Does it need to change? Absolutely. But that's the way it is. Well, that's definitely the way it is. And uh, Dennis, your thoughts, you're your dad, okay? Uh, raising your kids, doing what you need to do. You know, when I grew up, there was a different conversation. Conversation has changed now. Parents now have to tell their kids, uh, don't go near the police car. Run as far as you can from it. The with, conversation with your hands up. With your hands up, and that again apparently that doesn't work at all cases. Stay away. That's not the, the culture has changed, and to rebuild that and to fix that, Dennis, I don't know if that itself can be rebuilt without it starting with these programs, such as Judge Colbert and, and Tanya Washington are doing. Uh, at least to, as I said earlier, tear the foundation out. You have termites, folks. If it gets in the foundation, it's done. You have to tear it all the way down and start it all the way up. Dennis, your thoughts as you hear the challenges facing this nation and the troubling numbers. They said during that time of that clip, 109,000 juveniles were arrested. That, that That is insanity to me. Your thoughts? All I can say is that it's it's about awareness. I truly believe that it's it's about awareness. It's about uh, you know everything that's done in the juvenile system is pretty much kept you know from the public uh, the eyes. Actually, you know when you talk about the criminal justice system itself, uh, very little do we uh, you, you know put it out there for the American citizens to see what is actually happening. And I, I think we need to do that. I think we need to get, you know, let America know that, you know, yeah, the majority of the children that are that are going from the school to prison pipeline are minorities. I mean, we, we got to be realistic. Uh, we got to let them know that some of these crimes that we're putting kids and children in prison for is just regular stuff that kids do. Well, it, it is absolutely right. Uh and I want to go back to Khalif Browder. Uh, that story will not leave me. Wow. Um, we're going to hear a little bit uh, about that situation and that story. I want the American people to let that sink in. Uh, it's critically, critically uh, important that you hear this. Well, we end today's show with the tragic news that Khalif Browder has committed suicide. He was a young New York student who spent three years in Rikers Island jail without being convicted of a crime. On Saturday, Khalif took his own life at his home in the Bronx. He was 22 years old. In 2010, when he was just 16, he was sent to Rikers Island without trial on suspicion of stealing a backpack. Earlier this year, the New Yorker obtained explosive video showing the violence to which Khalif was subjected to there. Surveillance camera footage shows him being abused on two separate occasions. In one clip from 2012, the teenager is seen inside Rikers Central Punitive Segregation Unit, better known as the Bing. As a guard escorts Khalif to the showers, uh, uh, Khalif appears to speak, and then the guard suddenly violently hurls him to the floor, although he's already handcuffed. 
Uh, in a separate video clip from 2010, Khalif is attacked by almost a dozen other teenage inmates after he punches a gang member who spat in his face. The other inmates pile onto Khalif and pummel him until guards finally intervene. Khalif's case led to calls for reforming New York's criminal justice system. On the night of his arrest years ago, Khalif Browder was walking home from a party with his friends in the Bronx May 15, 2010, when he was stopped by police based on a tip that he had robbed someone weeks earlier. He told HuffPost Live what happened next. They had searched me, and the guy actually said, at first he said, I robbed him, I didn't have anything on me. And that's you when say nothing, you mean no weapon and none of his property? Weapon, no money, anything he said that I allegedly robbed him for. So the guy actually changed up his story and said that I actually tried to rob him, but then another police officer came and they said that, that um, I robbed him two weeks prior. And then they said, we're going to take you to the precinct and most likely we're going to let you go home. And then I never went home. That's right. Khalif Browder did not return home for 33 months, almost three years, even though he was never tried or convicted. For nearly 800 days of that time, he was held in solitary confinement. He maintained his innocence, requested a trial, but was only offered plea deals while the trial was repeatedly delayed. Near the end of his time in jail, the judge offered to sentence him to time served if he entered a guilty plea and told him he could face 15 years in prison if he was convicted. He refused to accept the plea deal, was only released when the case was dismissed. When you hear that, ladies and gentlemen, we are dealing with cruelty at a level that should never be in America. This is uncomprehendable. And if I heard correctly, a backpack. Wow. You arrested this you arrested this man on suspicion. Of stealing a bag? But then nothing was found. And then the cop changes the story. No, okay, well, you robbed him two weeks ago. Well, you don't find, you find no circumstantial evidence. You don't find anything that says that I robbed this, this man. Now, as a, and then as a minor, you take me down to the police station. We're going to take you down for questioning. And he doesn't get released for uh, three years? A backpack. For a backpack. What was in the backpack? Well, he tried to he tried to steal it from me. What are you talking about? I mean, this is... Khalif Browder is dead. He took his life. You hold a man at one of the most violent institutions in America, a teenager, a kid, on suspicion of a backpack. And the presumption of innocence that is supposed to be in this country, you take him to Rikers Island, and he ultimately takes his life. No charges ever brought against this young man, but you destroyed him in an adult penitentiary. The war, I, I tell you what, that is the sickest garbage that I have ever heard on this program. And we've heard some sick stuff. You're telling me a 16-year-old boy on suspicion, Cliff, of taking a backpack that 
no doubt values at Target or Walmart for $9.99 probably. He's dead today because of a backpack. And the only reason he was released, because he would not take a plea bargain. That's right. No evidence, uh, nothing even circumstantial, nothing. The man said, well, he tried nothing, and you keep him in for three years and still try to get him Take a plea deal so that we can so we can keep you locked up. There is no plea deal where there there is no crime. And like you said, Dennis, the only reason he got out is because he didn't take a plea. It's it's a it's it's a tragedy. I'm Lamont. I believe me. I feel what you feel. It, it's just ridiculous that a, a life is lost all because of a justice system that is broken and has no nothing. Instituted, and there's nothing in the system to bring about, you know, some type of charges on the policemen or the accountability to the to all those that were involved. Somebody needs to be held accountable. America needs to know that there is repercussions that will take place when something like this this happens. Until that happens, it's going to happen again. So let's take a moment and thank our guest, Tanya Washington. Judge Colbert, thank you for joining us tonight. We appreciate that, and we close this segment out. But make no mistake about it, we get ready for the next segment. And what is it? This is what you didn't know about the IRP6 story. Some people think that business is a game. And what we have learned is that business actually is war. When they wanted people to sign non-disclosure agreements and all that kind of stuff, sometimes they didn't want to do it. It's strange to me. I think it's still strange. It just absolutely makes no sense. Is this really real? Is this happening? And then all of a sudden your whole life is ripped apart. What we have learned is that the IRP6 story was supposed to be the American dream is an American nightmare. They were floored that uh, they were even being raided. Um, it became very clear that the court-appointed attorneys were not working for the guys. Um, and it seemed like in many cases that they were um, collaborating or working with the prosecution. We constantly hear in the news, every week you're going to hear about another person wrongfully convicted. And this is a unique case in the sense that you have six men, six businessmen that have been wrongfully convicted. You would think the media would jump all over it. Justice is not fair anymore. They say justice is supposed to be blind. It's not blind. It's not blind. They pick and choose who they want to convict and who they want to send to jail. Is this happening in America? The American dream of the RP6 has turned into a nightmare, crying children left behind as a result of a corrupt system and corruption. We will seek and search for justice. We will ask the tough questions. We will demand answers as justice lays idle in the streets of America. We look for the answer. 
Ladies and gentlemen, go out to change.org, sign the petition now. America's future depends on it. And ladies and gentlemen, what is going on in America? The IRP6, we dedicate this program to in this segment. Who are they? They are patriots of America, men who had a vision to keep the homeland safe. And they were wrongfully convicted, now almost four years in federal custody in Florence, Colorado. What you didn't know about the RP6 is that these six men are innocent. Who are they? David Banks, Dave Zapolo, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, and Gary Walker. Tonight, we shine the light on a very important issue that has not been looked at, but we look at it tonight here on What You Didn't Know. What you didn't know about the RP6 is that in the case regarding these men, the conduct of Judge Arguello, Matthew Kirsch, John Walsh were not simply an error of law. They were actually crimes that were committed. Crimes that had you or any of your friends committed could have set you in prison up to 20 years. Obstruction of justice. And this is what it says in the definition of tampering with the witness or obstruction of justice is this. It is to withhold testimony or withhold a record, document, or other objects from an official proceeding. To alter, destroy, mutilate, or conceal an object with the intent to impair the integrity or availability of that object for use in an official proceeding. That sounds very familiar to me, Cliff, because Judge Aguayo did almost exactly those things. Matthew Kirsch did almost exactly those things. And John Walsh did almost exactly those things. Those issues and those, that conduct or committing of crimes at a minimum puts us in prison for 20 plus years. Tell us a little more about what Judge Arguello did. In this case, when you're looking at a situation where she withheld transcripts and those things, that is, to me, the definition of what I just read. It is a clear-cut case of obstruction of justice. Well, absolutely. I mean, you look at it just like you say, if any of us as a normal citizen of the United States, if we commit these crimes and they are crimes, you if you uh interfere with a a, a tamper you tamper with a witness as uh, assistant US attorney Matthew Kirsch did, uh you obstruct justice by, you know, taking away someone's evidence by keeping their witnesses from testifying, that is a crime. That is witness tampering. Every U.S. citizen, we are bound by the law if we commit a crime. So the judge, the prosecutor, the U.S. attorney, the court reporter, they should be held under the same uh, umbrella, credence, uh, uh, anything, other, whatever you want to call it, they should be held under that same thing under the law that if you commit a crime then you are punishable by the law just like every other citizen this this immunity we've been talking about it forever 
and the uh, the American people aren't immune. So why should judges and prosecutors be immune when they commit crimes? Well, they should be prosecuted just like uh, you and I should be. Well, Cliff, according to the law, Lisa Dennis, if a crime is committed, immunity is out the window. You are not granted immunity for the commission of a crime. If you see a judge prosecuted and found guilty of a crime, as we've seen, they are sent to prison. Immunity, and ladies and gentlemen of America, make no mistake about it. These are commission of crimes. What they like to us to believe is that, well, this was an error of law. Therefore, you can't go after the judge or the prosecutor. This was a mishandling of the law. This was an innocent, what they call harmless error. A committing of a crime, and this is what Judge Aguayo did. It says here, whoever knowingly uses intimidation, threatens, or corruptly persuades another person, or attempts to do so, or engages in misleading conduct toward another person with intent, she's facing up to 30 years in prison. This is exactly, Cliff, what she did with the jury. She threatened in the jury. She used an act of intimidation and said, if you come back with a hung jury, you will be held financially responsible for this trial. That sounds to me, whoever knowingly uses intimidation or threatens, that is a crime. This is what you didn't know about the RP6. And when you think about that, that changes the whole equation, Dennis, doesn't it? Yes, they call she called it a harmless error. That error put innocent men in prison. Well, it was not an error. As you said, she broke the law. And I'll tell you what, folks. We as individuals would be held responsible and sent to prison as an act of these of the conduct of this judge. Therefore, the judge should be brought up on criminal charges. I agree. This is the law. This is what we say. You'll see people come on the news. We want to let everybody know no one's above the law. Really? Maybe you need to rethink that statement because judges are getting away with this garbage every day. Judge Aguayo continues. And this type of conduct affected not only the IRP-6, but the entire families of the IRP-6, the children of the IRP-6. You broke the law, Judge Aguayo. You must be held accountable. We hide behind the cloak of, well, I'm a judge, and this was just procedural damage. No, this was collateral damage. That's right. I can't go into a courtroom and say, oh, I misthought or I misspoke. You don't have that privilege in a court of law when you're talking about the lives of men that hang and women that hang in the balance. You're not given the do-over, a mulligan, as they call it in golf. You're not given that. Judge Aguayo did one thing. She violated the law. She committed a crime. The prosecutor committed, the U.S. attorney rather, committed a crime. Take a look, ladies and gentlemen of America. This was not, in har- this was not harmless error. This affected the lives of the IRP-6, wrongfully convicted these men. How many other judges are doing the same thing in this country? How many times have people stepped in Judge Aguayo's courtroom and crimes have been committed that no one wants to talk about. Exactly. This is a violation of the law. Obstruction of justice. Something needs to be done about it. Folks, join us next time for what you didn't know about the IRP-6. And I'll tell you right now, someone has to be held accountable. There are folks responsible for the wrongful conviction 
of these six men. Who are they? I say their names again affectionately. David Banks, Dave Sapolo, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, Gary Walker, AJC, a just cause, fights for justice. The perpetrators of justice, Lisa, who are they? They are U.S. Attorney John Walsh, Assistant U.S. Attorney Matthew Kirsch, Assistant U.S. Attorney Sunita Hazra, Attorney Greg Goldberg, Federal Judge Christine Arguello, Appellate Judge Jerome Holmes, Appellate Judge Bobby Baldock, Appellate Judge Harris Hart, Federal Judge R. Brooke Jackson, Magistrate Judge Craig Schaefer, Court Reporter Darlene Martinez, FBI Agent John Smith, FBI Agent Robert Moen, Former Federal Agent John Epke, Former Federal Agent Gary Hilberry, Attorney Thomas Goodreed, Attorney Clifford Barnard, Attorney Thomas Richard, Attorney Robert Berger, Attorney Mitchell Baker, Attorney Boston Staten Jr., Attorney Rick Cornfield, Attorney Mark Garagos, Susan Holland of ETI Professional Services, and Samuel K. Thurman. And thank you for that, Lisa, the perpetrators of justice. And ladies and gentlemen, don't forget to go to change.org, sign the petitions in the search bar, put IRP6. We need your signatures today as we seek and ask the president for clemency for these six patriots of America. Also, we ask you to go out to Renee Lima Marin's change.org, sign her, his petition as he seeks justice to come home wrongfully convicted. Uh, we need to come together, ladies and gentlemen, in America as we get ready to search for justice. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us tonight. We'll see you next time as we bring the message of justice all around the world. I'm Lamar Banks, along with Cliff Stewart, Dennis Merritt. We bid you a good night. Good night, America. Good night. In the U.S. city of New Orleans, the juvenile detention system is coming under fire. A worrying number of young offenders are becoming victims of violence and abuse while incarcerated. Artis Priya Shrida headed to the city to find out firsthand how the present system seems to be failing those it's seeking to rehabilitate. What makes me mad when I see my people suffer? Jeremiah Douglas is back on the streets of New Orleans. Like many of the kids here, Douglas was locked up in America's juvenile justice system. Growing up, you know, I was raised around, like, everybody I read around with hood mentality and um, certain things I had to do, certain things I wasn't supposed to do, and I did it because I thought it was cool. The hood mentality these kids knew drove many to crime. But now that they're out, they're trying to redefine it to make sure they don't go back. My main focus is getting the truth out in the world. You know, so people could be like, well, I don't have to do this. Douglas's story isn't unique. Most juveniles who are incarcerated in the United States are poor and black. Louisiana has the highest rate of kids getting locked up in this country. Advocates for the kids say they just need something to do to stay out of trouble. And they're not always the culprit. Many of these kids became victims of the system. It was a regular occurrence for us to visit children who had been raped who um, had broken eardrums, um, shattered jaws. <laughs> I mean, just a huge, unbelievably horrible things happened to them while they were incarcerated. Raven Spears was locked up too. Fighting, 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 fighting. And guards, like, they cursing at us and stuff. And behind bars, they're a group that can be forgotten. 
There's very little public scrutiny. There's very little transparency or accountability. The general public or elected officials um, overall, not to say everyone, but elected officials overall might consider their primary constituency. But reversing society's perception of them is one challenge they'll continue to face. Youth of color are overrepresented in the juvenile justice system. Now, in Louisiana, in the Deep South, there is certainly a particularly virulent history of racism. So, you know, you can't deny that there is a, a history of racism that has kind of led us to where we are today. In spite of the obstacles, these kids are striving for success. That I'm trying to be a millionaire, successful. And when I die, I want, you know, people be like, well, Jeremiah did this. I want to be something like Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. You know, Jesse Jackson, what all they did back in the day. Persevering in a place where the odds are stacked against them.